Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Taming the Shrew podcast. This week, we are covering our most recent journal club where residents explored a trio of trauma-related articles. The first one is going to be by Dr. Edmund Aronkade, uh, who looked at a paper that explored the addition of arginine vasopressin during uh, large volume uh, resuscitations in hemorrhagic shock patients. Um, so... The overarching theme that we uh, both picked uh, from our, our research articles was in regards to trauma resuscitation. And so we all decided to focus on a certain aspect of the resuscitation process. And my article focused on uh, product transfusion, uh, while my colleagues focused on airway and somebody else focused on access during trauma resuscitation. And so the, re- the article that I chose was uh, particularly interesting to me because it focused on vasopressin, which, as we all know, ATLS does not really give good light to presses in, in trauma resuscitation. And, but I figured it looked uh, as it was a very well-studied article, and the process that they did the study was very intriguing, and I think it's uh, worth the discussion. And so the title was called The Effect of Low-Dose Supplementation of Arginine Vasopressin on the Need for Blood Product Transfusions in Patients with Trauma and Hemorrhagic Shock. The study was done at UPenn. Uh, it was a single-center study. And they focused in on this because the primary author of the article uh, happens to be very involved with microbiology as well as more in-depth like area of hemorrhagic shock. And so for her, the biggest thing was arginine vasopressin, which is released by the pituitary gland and just how that factors in later on in the cycle of uh, hemorrhagic shock. The objective for them was to determine if whether low-dose supplementation of AVP in patients with trauma and also in hemorrhagic shock actually decreases the need of how much blood products they require during the resuscitation. And so this was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trial, um, which included adult trauma patients ages 18 to 65, and and they needed to receive at least six units of any blood product within 12 hours of the injury uh, to be included in the study. And it was done from late 2013 to 2017, so a span of four years. And they did not include patients who um, were in dire need. So these are patients who either required pre-hospital CPR, they excluded pre-hospital CPR, uh, ED thoracotomy, um, corticosteroid use, people with chronic renal insufficiency, uh, coronary artery disease, people who have had any sort of TBI requiring any neurosurgical intervention, uh, pregnant patients, or prisoners as well. They um, ultimately used a a computer-generated system to randomize patients into the different groups. They looked at a total of uh, 100 patients, and what they did was they gave AVP, um, an AVP bolus of four units, uh, or placebo, which was saline, and they looked at how much products were required over two-day spans of 48 hours, and to see if patients who received AVP required less blood products, um, ultimately because of uh, complications associated with uh, excessive transfusions from fluid overload, uh, any sort of complications. And um, while their primary focus was on just how much blood units were required when patients who received AVP, uh, they also looked at some secondary outcomes such as morbidity, mortality, Um, complications associated from uh, increased blood transfusions.
they were about over 3,000 trauma activations over that four-year span, and using all the inclusion-exclusion criteria, came down to 100 patients that were allocated in the control group and the experimental group. What they found out overall was that the patients who ended up getting included in the study um, required at least about a liter less of blood products than patients who did not have AVP. And so they did find out that the primary outcome from their um, studies actually, they used uh, the absolute standardized difference and to reduce the amount of uh, false positives. So they tried to make sure that their uh, type 1 errors were reduced. And they actually had statistically significant results in regards to how many patients actually required less blood products. They did not power for their secondary complications, and this was so that they would still keep the integrity of the study and not necessarily lose those initial studies. So unfortunately, uh, by not doing this, they ended up not having statistically significant um, results in regards to uh, things such as uh, ARDS or patients who ended up having any sort of uh, like mortality morbidity. There was no significant difference between the groups because they did not power for this. And so ultimately, when I when we we're discussing in regards to clinical significance versus uh, um, the statistical significance, it's not something that is ultimately practice changing. I actually talked with uh, three of the trauma surgeons here uh, at UC, and um, some of them actually trained with the primary author and actually know this uh, group of uh, authors pretty well. But they mentioned that and the authors also mentioned that ultimately we need a few more studies to actually be able to generalize this to more than just one institution. And then it'll be nice to have a study that actually looks at mortality and morbidity to see if there's actually any benefit in this. Because right now, all, all it pretty much shows is that you get less blood products, but ultimately there's no patient outcomes that seem to be benefited from this uh, particular study. All right. Thanks to Dr. Arankande for that recap of that article. Um, it's a very interesting uh, topic to explore, uh, honestly. I think that uh, when we look at uh, even uh, large volume resuscitations in septic patients um, and and patients that are generally quite hypovolemic, you know, we are potentially finding that adding on a element of vasopressors earlier in their resuscitation may help with sparing some of the fluids. And in this situation, certainly seem to have led the sparing of blood product resuscitation. Now, you know, how much blood you use on a patient, um, that, that actually can be a very patient-oriented outcome. It can actually be a very system-oriented outcome as well. Obviously, that's a whole lot less resources that are consumed. It's a lot, risk, a lot less risk that the patient is exposed to in terms of the potential for transfusion-related reactions. Um, so it will be interesting to see uh, as the evidence continues to develop in this particular area whether or not this is actually sort of a change in our practice that's going to come over the next several years. Up next, we're going to be uh, looking at varying airway techniques uh, in the trauma patient. Uh, and we're going to be led through that discussion by Dr. Kate Connolly. I chose to focus on airway management for my article. And my article was titled The Comparison of Video Laryngoscopy to Direct Laryngoscopy for the Emergency Intubation of Trauma Patients. And this was of particular interest to me because here at the University of Cincinnati, over the past couple of years, we have had a trend toward moving towards video laryngoscopy for all trauma intubations. And I was curious to see if there was any evidence that actually supported this practice. 
So if we take uh, a quick minute to break this down in our like PICO framework, the question that was asked here was, among trauma patients requiring emergency intubation, is video laryngoscopy compared to direct laryngoscopy associated with a higher rate of successful intubation with the first device used? This study was done at the University of Arizona, which is a level one trauma center. And I particularly like the fact that their trauma activations are staffed similarly to the way ours are at University of Cincinnati. They are staffed with EM attendings and residents, as well as trauma attendings and residents. And the intubations are performed primarily by EM residents with EM attending supervision. Um, in this paper, the majority of the intubations were done by PGY3 residents, followed by PGY2s, then PGY1s. In terms of methods, the data was collected prospectively on all trauma intubations over a three and a half year period from January of 2008 to June of 2011. The intubation method, which is RSI versus sedation only versus no medication assistance, was at the discretion of the EM attending, as well as the device used and the decision to switch devices if the initial attempt failed. They had multiple options for both DL and BL intubations. They had Mac, Miller, and Grandview blades available for DL. And for VL, they had three different GlideScope options as well as a CMAC platform with multiple blades available for each. After an intubation was performed, a data collection sheet was filled out, in most cases immediately afterwards, by the person who had actually performed the intubation and included information such as the reason for intubation, the reason for device selection, the presence or absence of difficult airway predictors such as short neck, cervical immobility, obesity, a large tongue, a small mandible, blood or vomit in the airway, the presence of airway edema, and the presence of facial or neck trauma, as well as any complications such as esophageal intubation, mainstem intubation, aspiration, or desaturation below 90%. The primary endpoint was successful intubation without the need to change devices, regardless of the number of attempts made. And the secondary endpoints were first pass success, Cormac Lehane grade view obtained, complications, and if the first attempt failed, the reason for that failure. Um, attempts were defined as um, insertion of a laryngoscope into the patient's mouth, first pass success was defined as intubation with one blade insertion, and overall success was defined as success with the first device chosen regardless of number of attempts. So in terms of their results, a total of 709 patients were enrolled, 45% of these patients were intubated with DL, 55% with BL. There was no difference in patient age, gender, mechanism, indication for intubation, or experience of the intubator based on PGY year. BL patients were more severely injured in that they had a higher ISS score, they had more predictors of difficult airway, and they were more often in C-spine precautions. There was a significant difference in the reason for device selection. Um, DL was chosen due to a standard airway 95% of the time. 4% of the time for a difficult airway, and 1% of the time for educational purposes. BL was chosen in 20% of standard airways for a difficult airway 64% of the time, and for educational purposes 16% of the time. There was no difference in first pass success. BL was successful 76% of the time versus DL 71% of the time, or in the number of attempts, 1.3 for BL and 1.5 for DL on average. The rate of overall success was higher for VL at 88% versus 83% for DL, and that was success without changing devices. And the success, success in patients who were in C-spine immobilization was also higher for VL at 87 versus 80%. There was no significant difference in the success rates with other difficult airway predictors. Overall, a better view was achieved with VL than with DL. And in cases where the initial intubation failed, DL failure was most often due to inability to visualize the cords whereas VL was due to inability to direct the ET tube through the cords. When the initial device failed 
and DL was used as the second choice. It was successful 95% of the time, where VL was successful as the second choice 86% of the time. Uh, Bougies were used as an adjunct relatively infrequently in both groups, 2.5% of the time with DL and half percent of the time with VL. There was no significant difference in the complications between groups, though there were trends toward more common esophageal intubations and right main stem intubations with DL and trends towards more aspiration and desaturations with VL. In the multivariate analysis uh, for failure, where they controlled for gender, the presence of shock, heterofacial injuries, difficult airway predictors, and experience of the intubator, a short mandible had the highest odds ratio for failure at 5.9, blood in the airway had an odds ratio of 2.6, and DL versus VL had an odds ratio of 1.8, and that was statistically significant. Based on all this, the overall conclusions of the authors was that VL was associated with a higher overall success rate than DL, and that VL should be preferred, the preferred method of intubation in immobilized patients. So my thoughts on this, going back to their methods section, first of all, I think that allowing, this was obviously not a randomized trial, the EM attending had discretion to choose what type of intubation was used and whether or not to switch devices if the initial intubation attempt failed. I think this was probably a pretty practical way to enroll a lot of patients, and they did have a good number of patients enrolled because it likely um, required minimal practice changes on their part. However, the fact that it wasn't randomized meant that BL was chosen for difficult airway patients 64% of the time, whereas DL was chosen 4% of the time for difficult airway patients. So we really weren't comparing BL to DL for trauma patients. We were comparing VL in difficult airway patients to DL in standard airway patients, which is maybe not the exact question that we wanted to ask. In terms of their primary endpoint, I'm not sure that successful intubation without the need to change devices is the endpoint that I care about the most. Because if you're, I, I suspect that part of the reason they chose that is because if you successfully intubate a patient with DL on the fourth attempt, that means you probably could have done it successfully on the first attempt because you were able to intubate that patient with that method. But what I really care about when I'm intubating someone is can I intubate them successfully on the first attempt without causing them harm? And I'm going to throw back to the metric that has kind of been coined here by Dr. Bill Hinckley in Cincinnati about DASH-1A, definitive airway sans hypoxia or hypotension on the first attempt. And that is the endpoint that I really care about, and that was not captured in this study. As stated, overall success is not equivalent to DASH-1A success. Overall success also isn't a terribly patient-censored outcome. Um, if you are able to intimate that patient on the fifth attempt with the method that you chose, does that correlate to morbidity or mortality for that patient? That's not captured here. Um, there was a relatively high rate of desaturation in both groups. Um, I think there's desaturation about 14% of the time in the VL group and 9% of the time in the DL group. There was no mention of what they did in terms of pre-oxygenation or apneic oxygenation. There was no DSI performed. Um, so it would be interesting to know what they were doing in terms of oxygenation and how that would have affected outcomes in the groups. Um, overall, there was also a very low rate of bougie use. I know here, at least with University of Cincinnati Air Care, we've moved towards bougie on the first attempt every time. And here, at most, they were using bougies 2.5% of the time. This is kind of an older study, so bougies were probably not as popularized at the time this was done, but it would have been interesting to uh, know what the rationale there was for using or not using bougies. And also, I think it would have been interesting to see a breakdown of VL blade or in what type of stylet they were using, whether they were using um, hyperangulated. Uh, rigid stylet with the blades. Um, because again, comparing a standard geometry blade versus a hyperangulated blade, I think would have been a useful outcome to see in this study. Um, I know that there is sometimes the perception that the CMAC blade is, the uh, hyperangulated CMAC blade is always going to be the best option in trauma. 
Whereas sometimes maybe using a Mac 4 or Mac 3 for uh, VL, preserving the option to DL afterwards may be a better option. Um, and none of that, again, was captured in this study. All right. Thank you, Dr. Connolly, for that uh, recap. You know, uh, obviously, this is a very important topic. You know, trauma airways can be especially fraught. Um, they are generally quite dynamic. Uh, you know, the patients that we see uh, can have blood in the airways. Uh, they can be difficult from an anatomic standpoint, either from their pre-existing body habitus or facial structures or because of facial trauma or limited neck mobility because of cervical spinal immobilization, uh, which makes uh, both uh, getting their airway and, and, and studying their airway from an academic standpoint um, very challenging. And uh, obviously this paper met with some of those challenges in terms of uh, apples to apples comparators of video versus direct laryngoscopy when the patients were actually quite different between the groups. So, um, all right, next up, we're going to be moving to Dr. Ali Hunt, who's going to talk about access uh, in the trauma patient. Is an IO really as good as an IV or is it better? So keeping with the theme of trauma resuscitations, our group decided to review an article on IV access. We chose a prospective observational study that was published in the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery back in 2018. It was titled, The IOs Have It, a prospective observational study of vascular access success rates in patients and extremists using video review. It was performed by Treman et al., researchers at the University of Pennsylvania which is a level one trauma center. They reviewed video recordings of trauma patients to determine the speed and success of placement of peripheral IVs versus central lines versus IOs. We'll get into the specifics of the study shortly, but what they found was that IOs and peripheral IVs are equally as fast. However, IOs are twice as likely to be successful in placement. Central lines, not surprisingly, were found to have the highest failure rates and the longest insertion times. Therefore, they argued that IOs should definitely be considered as first-line therapy for trauma patients in extremis. So just to discuss a bit of the background of vascular access in trauma patients, the authors noted that IOs are actually a relatively new method for IV access and have recently become more popular, especially among the civilian populations, but have been used for quite some time in the military setting. The Level 1 hospital where the study was performed has a unique system in that police have been actually allowed to transport victims of penetrating trauma to the trauma center since 1996. Therefore, a lot of their patients arrive without pre-notification and with no IV access. One major point to note of this study is that their patient population consisted solely of patients in extremis, which they defined as absence of a palpable pulse or measurable blood pressure. One would argue that this certainly makes it a little bit more difficult to generalize these study results to other patient populations, for example, the more stable trauma patient or even a sick medical patient. So let's move on and discuss a little bit about the methods of the study. They gathered their data by reviewing video recordings of all patients undergoing ED thoracotomy from April 2016 through July of 2017. Our group found it interesting and spent quite a bit of time discussing how they wanted to look at patients in extremis, however, only reviewed thoracotomy cases. We felt that there could be a significant proportion of patients who could be in extremis as within a palpable pulse or measurable blood pressure who didn't undergo thoracotomy. Specifically, that brings to mind more of our sick blunt trauma patients. 
I think after our discussion, it came to the consensus that this likely was a study that they seem to have been reviewing resuscitative thoracotomy cases for a number of other issues as well, and thought that this would be another good endpoint to look at. So it was a little bit of um, adding on additional factors to look at for um, resuscitative thoracotomy cases. So each uh, video was reviewed by one of three reviewers, and they looked at the type of vascular access and the location. Additional variables that they looked at were success rate, which was the primary outcome, and duration of the attempt, which was one of the secondary endpoints. Start time was actually defined as needle insertion. However, our group discussed how it can often take a quite a long time, especially in hemorrhagic shock patients, to figure out which vein to attempt a peripheral IV in, which could therefore actually make peripheral IV attempts a little bit longer than IO attempts in that manner. They also recorded patient variables, including demographics, mechanism of injury, and severity of the injury, along with provider variables of discipline, so medic, physician, nurse, and training level, so resident, fellow, or attending. They found that 39 patients met their inclusion criteria. However, one of these patients was excluded because they had already arrived with IV access and no further access was attempted. So in total, they ended up with 38 patients and a total of 145 attempts. The vast majority of patients were African-American males with penetrating trauma brought to the hospital by police, all of whom arrived in extremis. There was a mean of 3.8 vascular attempts per patient, and central lines and IOs were most frequently undertaken. For first attempts, peripheral IVs were most common in 54% of patients, followed by IOs in 42%, and then central lines in 5%. Physicians, then nurses, then medics made the most attempts. And of note, IOs were actually attempted by all disciplines, so medics, nurses, and physicians. And our group discussed how this is yet another reason that IOs can be useful and that many providers of different levels of training can place them. Success rates were highest for tibial IOs at 92%, followed by humeral IOs at 83%. And then interestingly, they also um, noted that intracardiac lines were successful in 75% of cases. However, they only had four of these performed. Additionally, it's not something that I feel a lot of us use in our emergency departments, so it's not something that the paper focused on quite a lot. Success rates of peripheral IVs was about 43%, and success rates for central lines were 44%, so pretty equivalent among those two. Interestingly, central line success rate didn't differ by site uh, with a p-value of 0.99 or provider type with a p-value of 0.79. We also discussed how we were somewhat surprised by the overall poor success rates for peripheral IV and central line attempts at under 50%. However, when you think about this patient population um, who are arriving in extremis and likely hemorrhagic shock, it makes a little bit more sense. Peripheral IVs and IOs were without clinically significant difference in duration of the attempt, but they were both faster than central line attempts. 12 out of the 38 patients in the study ended up achieving ROSC, and eight survived long enough to be taken to the OR. Two of the patients survived uh, to discharge actually neurologically intact. 
However, they did note that there was no association between the time to first vascular access completion and ROSC. So our group thought um, that it may be more important in terms of getting the patient to definitive treatment, such as the OR, as opposed to spending a lot of time um, getting a peripheral line or an IO, which may not actually affect the long-term outcome in this patient population. So the big takeaway points from the results was that IO access was more than 90% successful, which is more than two times that of peripheral IVs or central lines, and that IOs and peripheral IVs were equally as fast. However, another important thing to take into consideration here that the paper also discussed is that flow rates are of important consideration as well. Ideally, we want to find the perfect balance of speed of insertion with the flow rates that are needed for resuscitation. Humoral IOs have a flow rate of about 5 liters per hour, and tibial IOs only have flow rates of 1 liter per hour. While success at humoral IOs is slightly less than tibial IOs, humoral would definitely be desired for the higher flow rates. Not surprisingly, central lines do have the highest flow rates, but as this study shows, these take significantly longer to place and are less likely to be successfully placed. During our group discussion, we spent a decent amount of time talking about the utility of IOs and the trauma patient who's an extremist. What we kind of ended up agreeing on in conjunction with the study results is that the quick insertion time of IOs make them very useful as a bridge to more definitive IV access, such as trauma calf. They may also be useful to pump up total blood volume, making subsequent attempts at peripheral IVs or central lines more successful. So before we wrap up, I did just want to touch on some of the main limitations of this study. The patient population of this study is a super small subset of trauma patients, um, those undergoing thoracotomy. Some would argue that this small subset makes it difficult to generalize to the more stable trauma patient or any medical patient. Additionally, in patients who are less ill, the success of central lines and peripheral IVs is likely to be higher than the rates found in this paper. We felt that this was a very well done study overall. Their method of video review allowed for reliable data collection and the results have the backing to possibly be practice changing. Some providers in our group uh, discussion did mention that they would actually consider IOs earlier in the unstable trauma patient after reading this paper. So I definitely think for some people who have read it in our group, it may be practice changing. All right. Thank you, Dr. Hunt, for covering this topic. You know, IV access or intravascular access on trauma patients can be especially challenging because they can be so significantly volume depleted, you know, and uh, certainly in traumatic arrest situations as oh, this paper uh, covered you know, something like an IO. It's going to be obviously very quick uh, and going to be able to get some fluids on board, but limitations of flow rate can be very significant, especially in the situation of a traumatic arrest where, you know, a liter over an hour is really an unacceptable flow rate. You know, you really need to give, you know, 500 cc's a liter of uh, volume, uh, usually in the form of a blood product within a very, very short period of time, minutes, uh, as opposed to hours. Um, so, uh, obviously, uh, not a perfect solution to uh, all ails, not a silver bullet, as it were, uh, but another potential tool in our uh, in our capabilities of being able to deal with and manage these patients. So thank you all uh, to the residents, and thank you to all that are out there listening. Um, hope you join us again next time for another Tame of the Shrew podcast.